Welcome to Reading Between the Lines, the People's Friends story podcast in association with the Odd Fellows. Each episode, a few of us from the Friend team, along with some special guests, will delve into our archives to find a story to read, and then we'll all sit down for a wee chat about it. Make yourself a cup of tea, pull up a chair, and come join us. This episode, we're reading To Catch the Post, A Fortunate Delay by Clifford J.R. Cameron. This story was first published in The People's Friend on June 6th, 1910, and is narrated for us by Friend Production Editor Judy. Over to Judy. As David Fraser left the station and went out into the road, a wave of depression passed over him. This sudden transition to familiar surroundings brought with it a return of memory which a long railway journey had done much to dull, a memory of things far from pleasant. Six months previously, he had taken his young bride to their new home at Staines Maid, a district still to come under the sway of the jerry builder. At that time, Fraser was doing well in the city, as co-partner with a friend in a small business. But about five months after his marriage, he had gone to the office as usual one morning to find his friend absconded and himself ruined. It was a bitter blow, and only the thought of his wife enabled him to bear up under it. What little capital he had possessed outside of the business had gone to buy his new home, and nothing now remained but to start all over again at the bottom of the ladder. With this gloomy fact staring him in the face, he had diligently made a round of all the London firms whose line of business he was conversant with. But everywhere he was met with the same answer, no vacancy. As a last resort, he had visited the principal provincial towns but without success. And now he was called upon to face the hardest task of all. He would have to tell his wife that they must sell the home they had only just started. Half an hour's walk brought Fraser to his house, situated on an estate that was only just being developed. As the gate clicked behind him, a light sprang into being in the hall. The man groaned at this proof of watchfulness. He thought of the woman waiting to meet him and compared her loving welcome with his dismal news. No wonder his hand trembled as he inserted his key in the latch and a sigh of relief escaped his lips as the door swung open and he found the hall empty. Slowly he walked into the front room and glanced around. On the table, a dainty meal was spread for two, presenting an exhibition of spotless linen and sparkling silver. Before a glowing fire, his slippers were warming in company with the household cat, whose purring kept time with the ticking of the clock. Fraser sank into an easy chair. To think that very shortly all this must be given up, The house would have to be sold, the servants dismissed, 
and expenses cut down to the very lowest limit. A light step sounded outside the room. The door was opened hurriedly, and a skirt rustled silkily across the carpet. The next moment, Fraser felt his eyes covered by a pair of soft, warm hands, and a feminine voice cried, Guess! The dearest little wife in the world, proclaimed Fraser as gaily as he could. Then, as his vision was once more restored to him, he stared at his wife in astonishment. Why the honour of seeing you in your best evening frock, Mary? he asked. For answer, she swiftly bent over him and kissed his forehead. Then, dexterously eluding his grasp, she took her place at the table. If you'll come along like a good boy and have some dinner, you shall hear all the news later. And saying this, she touched the gong. Fraser meekly obeyed, knowing that the presence of the servant would effectually prevent the discussion of business topics for a time. When the remains of the meal had been finally cleared away and orders issued that the master and mistress were not to be disturbed, David pushed his chair to the fireplace and drew his wife to a seat on his knee. Now, young lady, he said, I want a true account of all that has happened since I went away, especially that which has bearing on your mysterious behaviour this evening. Well, first of all, tell me, have you had any luck on your travels? asked Mary. Not much, dear, not much. But we must hope for the best, replied David cheerfully, wishing that his first evening home should not be clouded. Then how dare you be so happy, sir, said Mary sternly. David looked up in surprise, but a merry twinkle in his wife's eye quickly dispelled any fear of her being in earnest. Stretching out an arm, she reached down a letter from the mantelpiece and held it before her husband's face. For a few minutes there was silence as he perused it. Then, with a whistle of astonishment, he let the paper flutter to the ground. Impossible, he ejaculated. Nothing of the kind, replied his wife in a matter-of-fact tone. The great Sir James Merribank wants a confidential secretary who knows his business so he offers you the post at 500 a year. You are going to accept, so there is the whole matter in a nutshell. When I saw the name on the envelope, I thought it too important a letter to leave unopened. And if you hadn't returned this evening, as you promised, I should have written to Sir James myself and accepted on your behalf. By Jove, yes, said Fraser, as he lifted his wife from his knee and crossed to the writing table. I must not forget the offer only holds good for reply by first post tomorrow morning. I had better write now and get finished. The writing of the reply was no light work. There were conditions to be stipulated, references to be given, and qualifications to be stated. But eventually, the document was written and the envelope addressed. Then came the question of a stamp. After hunting through his pocketbook and the pigeonholes of his desk, 
David was forced to confess that he had used his last one. Despite a frantic search in all manner of places, Mary had to agree. Fraser whipped out his watch. Half past seven, he said, and the post office is not only half an hour's walk, but it closes at eight. I wish to goodness the postal authorities would have some sort of automatic arrangement on each letterbox. Just think of the irony of having a box outside one's house and having to walk two miles to post a letter. Couldn't you give the letter to the postman when he clears the letterbox, together with the money for a stamp? asked Mary anxiously. Too risky, replied David. And after all, a walk won't hurt me. Goodbye for the present. Taking his hat and stick from the stand, Fraser left the house and started to walk briskly in the direction of the village, where the wired-off portion of the grocer's shop did duty for a post office. It was not easy walking. The estate on which his house was built had not been developed far, and the roads were still more or less in a rough state. Paths were uneven and badly defined by curbstones grass growing where pavement should have been. Fraser soon, however, began to warm to his work. With his hat set firmly on his head and grasping his stick by the middle, he swung along at a good pace. He was just congratulating himself on not having had to tell his wife how near they had been to selling the home, when a sound fell on his ear that quickly brought him to a standstill. It was the sound of a toy whistle, followed by a woman's cry for help. Coming on a dark night and in such a lonely place, it struck Fraser like the lash of a whip. For a moment he stood as one bereft of his senses, but the next minute the cry was repeated and Fraser located it as coming from a house standing some way off on a side road. Without further hesitation, he left the ill-defined path and commenced to run towards the house where assistance was required. It was perilous going in the dark. Little heaps of stones caused him to stumble and fall, and low-growing bushes entangled his legs, but he kept straight on. Reaching the fence which ran round the front garden, he lightly vaulted over, landed on a soft flower bed, heard his clothes rip ominously in the clutch of a rosebush, and then tore madly round to the side of the house where the entrance appeared to be. A flight of steps surmounted by a stone porch led up to the front door, which was standing wide open. At the top of these steps, Fraser came to a pause. Only his own heavy breathing and the thumping of his heart could be heard. The light of the hall lamp showed his boots covered with clay and his nether garments torn in a dozen places, results of the mad rush that had landed him in his present position. So peaceful did everything appear that Fraser was half inclined to fancy he had made a mistake, although he could not understand the door being open and nobody about. Suddenly, From the top of the house came the sound of a door being quickly opened and then shut, 
and someone rushing wildly down the stairs. It was a woman, a woman with the fear of death stamped vividly on her face. Her clothes were crushed and creased, her hair dishevelled. In her hand, she held a child's toy whistle, but on seeing Fraser, she flung this away and running forward, caught him by the arm. Thank God for sending somebody at last, she cried passionately. Go fetch a doctor quickly. My child, diphtheria, I am all alone. Bewildered by this outburst, Fraser stood as if rooted to the ground. The next moment, the woman was exerting all her strength in a wild endeavour to thrust him out through the doorway. Oh, she cried fiercely, cannot you understand? My only child and she will choke to death. Her hold on Fraser loosened. She tottered and would have fallen, but Fraser caught her and carried her into an adjoining room. Laying her on a couch, he snatched a bottle from the sideboard and forced a few drops of brandy between her teeth. As soon as fluttering eyelids announced the return of animation, Fraser rushed from the house, pausing only to read the name on the fanlight. Only too well had he grasped the woman's meaning. She was alone in the house, and her child had developed diphtheria. Little as he knew of this disease, he believed it demanded immediate and skilled attention. One moment he cursed as he thought how far was the nearest doctor. The next moment he thanked heaven that he had been a crack runner at school, ill-trained though he was now. Forgetting the important letter he had set out to post, Fraser buttoned up his coat and set off at a swinging pace. It did not take him long to find out the difference between daylight plus a cinder track and darkness plus a lumpy road. His course led through part of the estate that had not been built upon and the only road had suffered badly through disuse. On he pounded, one minute tripping over some inequality, the next minute floundering amongst innumerable ruts. Once he wandered off the track and came heavily to the ground over a curbstone. When he got up, his head felt very strange. His legs, too, were beginning to feel numb, and his heart beat violently against his ribs. Fancy-coloured lights danced before his eyes with irritating persistency. Presently, he thought he could distinguish a red light predominating over the others. It blinked and twinkled, blinked and twinkled, but never appeared to get nearer, and it seemed to Fraser as though he could never reach it. Lack of training was having a visible effect. His breath came in short, sobbing gasps. His throat felt like molten metal, and his clothes seemed a suit of armour. Gradually, his pace fell to a trot, from a trot to a half-walk, and he finally staggered up to the doctor's house like a drunken man. Dr MacDonald was crossing the passage to his study when someone bumped heavily into his front door and the bell rang as if the handle were being clutched at for support. On opening the door, the doctor found a man extended across the mat, white-faced, panting and exhausted. 
As the doctor carried him into the house, the man opened his eyes and muttered, Hawthorne House, child, diphtheria, quickly! Hurriedly summoning his wife to take charge of this strange visitor, the doctor seized his emergency bag and ran round to the stables. The groom was unharnessing the horse and trap in which he had been driving his master on a late round, but a few words sent him to work tightening buckles again. Three minutes later, the trap was rapidly covering the distance to Hawthorne House. When Fraser regained consciousness, he found himself in bed in a strange room. His head throbbed painfully, and he felt very weak. Someone stirred at the end of the room, but the sound fell on the sick man's ears as though the action had taken place outside in the road. For a long time he stared at the wallpaper, tracing the pattern in an aimless, perfunctory manner. Once he tried to think what it all meant, but his memory failed him miserably. Presently, a cool hand was placed on his forehead and a uniformed nurse bent over him. Awake? she asked. Now please don't try to think, but just drink this and go to sleep again. The refreshing draught was welcome to his parched throat, and with a sigh of content, Fraser closed his eyes. When he next awoke, it was with a clearer brain. The pattern on the wall no longer represented old-time knights with sword and lance, but resolved themselves into examples of geometric stiffness. Gradually, his memory came back, and a shudder ran through his frame. Instantly, a chair was pushed back, and someone crossed the room. Then a kiss fell lightly on his brow. Mary, he asked dreamily. Yes, dear, your own Mary, replied his wife. How nice of you to wake up just when it was my turn to nurse you. Your turn to nurse me, asked her husband in a puzzled tone. Am I very ill then? They let me look after you for two whole hours in the afternoon when the nurse goes out for some fresh air. You've had rather a bad time, poor boy, but now you must try to get a little better every day. Oh, David, how brave you are! And a hot tear fell on the sick man's cheek. The child! Was I in time? Just by five minutes or so, replied Mary, as she laid a restraining hand on her husband's head. But you mustn't talk if you are going to get excited. Dr MacDonald says perhaps five, certainly ten more minutes would have been too late. How long have I been here? demanded David next. Two days, replied Mary. You collapsed in Dr MacDonald's house and they carried you upstairs where you now are. When the doctor returned from Hawthorne House, he found another patient to attend to and had you put to bed in double-quick time. They got my name from some papers in your pocket and sent the groom across for me. 
I was awfully frightened at first, but now I'm getting quite an experienced nurse, and I feel so very, very proud of you. A wave of emotion suddenly passed across Fraser's face, and a troubled look came into his eyes. My poor wifey, he said. Of course, my letter to Sir James was never posted, and as I did not answer his letter in person, he will probably have thought I did not care for the proposal. I suppose the appointment has gone to somebody else now. It's jolly hard lines on you, dearest, but the one consolation is that it couldn't be helped. I had to do my duty. We must just peg away somewhere else, that's all. Oh, is it? I'm rather inclined to think that it's the point where you start making mistakes, replied Mary solemnly. Now, if I tell you a really big, big piece of news, will you promise not to get excited? I'll try not to, said David, smiling at the way in which his wife was treating him. Then tell me, do you know the lady whose child's life you saved? No. Well, her husband is a Mr. Dunton. And what firm do you think he is a partner in? Is this a guessing competition? asked David blandly. No, I haven't the remotest idea. Well, Mr. Dunton is the junior partner in Messrs. Merrybank Limited, announced Mary gleefully. He has been over to see you several times and asked me if you were the Fraser his senior partner had offered a berth to. Of course, I told him everything and explained how it was you never replied to Sir James Merrybank's letter. He is so pleased with what he calls your heroic action that whatever do you think he has promised to do, Give it up, said David. Well, he is making arrangements for us both to go on a sea trip to get you quite well. And then you are to join his firm as the manager of a new department they are opening. There now, hasn't everything worked out splendidly? And Mary clapped her hands for sheer joy. Splendid, cried David as he drew his wife down until her head rested upon his pillow. Splendid! Why, it's simply ripping! Any further remarks that Mary may have made were too smothered to be intelligible. Perhaps, like a good wife, she let her husband have the last word. Reading Between the Lines is proud to be sponsored by Friendship Society The Odd Fellows. We recently asked some members of The Odd Fellows to call in and let us know what qualities they look for in a friend, and we're delighted to be able to share some of their answers. Hi, I'm Jane, an Odd Fellows member from Alton. For me, a friend is someone who makes me smile and makes me feel better about myself. Hi, this is Denise, an Odd Fellows member from the Wirral. A friend is is somebody who's got a lovely soft shoulder to cry on and who shares in your sorrow or happiness. Hello, my name is Keith and I'm a member of the Richmond, Surrey branch of the Oddfellows. A friend is one who will give you a hug during difficult times. 
True friendships provide us with memories that we cherish for a lifetime. They help us to grow and become better people. They help us to make a better society. For over 200 years, the Oddfellows has helped its members forge friendships and offered help in times of need. So why not give them a call today on 0800 028 1810 for a free information pack or visit oddfellows.co.uk to find your nearest branch. Everyone's welcome. Now, let me top up my tea, grab some of my friends, and we'll have that wee chat about the story you've just heard. That was To Catch the Post, A Fortunate Delay by Clifford J.R. Cameron. That story was first published in The People's Friend on June 6th, 1910, and that was narrated for us by Judy, the Friends production editor, who joins me now. Hello, Judy. Hello. We're also joined by friend editor Angela. Hello, Angela. Hello. And David from the DC Thompson Archives. Hello, David. Hey, yeah. What did we think of this story? Uh, this is, we've recently done a lot of, or done a couple of episodes where things are very dramatic. Um, and I would say that the drama here is quite slow going. <laughs> and I would say it's obviously it's it's still high stakes drama. There's a very ill child um, and quite a, a stark description of the her mother's fears for her life, I thought, uh, which we can probably get to a little bit later on. But um, probably not as dramatic as some of the other ones. Uh, a story named after the post probably didn't really merit. But uh, <laughs> what, what do we think about uh, this one. Judy, you were when you were reading it through, what were your thoughts? I didn't mind it, to be honest. I mean, I know it was, of course, highly unlikely in there. <laughs> but yeah, I didn't mind it. I thought, the, I thought the characters at least had a bit of something to them, mm-hmm. which sometimes in the more dramatic ones, they don't. I think I liked, I quite liked the, the wife seemed to have a bit about her. And just, you know, yeah. she opened his mail. She she was going to take decisions in her own hands, and uh, quite liked that, I must say. And she also sort of um, pulls his leg. She kind of has him on a couple of mm-hmm. times where when she's got her secret that she's yes. had this correspondence with Mister Marybank. Yeah, they, they seemed they seemed two decent sort of coves. <laughs> and you can't really ask for much more in a story by in, in, in the people's friend. Indeed not. What about yourself, Angela? What were your thoughts about? Uh, in particular, since Judy has mentioned it, in particular, the characters in this story. It's really difficult not to judge the story from 2022's viewpoint and to think yourself back into 1910. Maybe I wouldn't have been as irritated by the story if I was in 1910 <laughs> as I was in 2022, <laughs> but I actually found myself shouting at this story as I was reading it because it angered me so much. Um, I just thought the characters were dreadful. Um, the little woman waiting at home with the slippers warming by the fire. But that's what they did. Yes, but that's what I mean. It's I can't detach myself from <laughs> and my views and, and travel back to 1910 and become a little woman that warms slippers by the fire and opens her husband's mail. And awaits him in her best evening frock. Yeah, absolutely. So and and also, you know, he he too was was not truthful with his wife. He was, you know, hiding the fact that he wasn't able to get another job. And, you know, the way they spoke to each other, she spoke to him like he was a child. Um, 
I, I just had real problems with this story. I think this is one of these stories that's so much of its time that, you know, over 100 years later, it is quite difficult for for readers to to get back into that world. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't like it. Sorry, I didn't like it at all. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I think it had many flaws as a piece of fiction as well. Um, not least the improbable string of coincidences yeah. and... <laughs> And his inexplicable illness. What we what happens to him in the story that that he runs for help for this child and ends up unconscious for two days? What? I think he did hit his head, but yes, that was <laughs> stretching the bounds to their very limit. I see. Judy, we should have let Angela go first. She's just undercut all that nice stuff we said. About <laughs> but but that's you know you're. You're maybe looking at this. Um, maybe you find it easier to to think back into a 1910 mindset than I do. Yeah, I've tried that. I've, I've tried that. Can you wait by the door with my slippers, please? It doesn't go down well. <laughs> well, I don't know about you, but I mean that—that's what I do every night. <laughs> just just ask my husband. And and do you do you um, bang the gong to get your servants to bring your meal as well? I wish. <laughs> I'd like a gong. <laughs> I'd like a servant. No, I I kind of had a similar reaction to um, Angela in the it annoyed me and the kind of the the repartee between husband and wife was just like oh for God's sake no 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 <laughs> um, and this kind of like idyllic home setup like some sort of I don't nineteen sixties or 1950s kind of Stepford wife um, <laughs> kind of uh, set You see, I didn't think she was a Stepford wife. No, I just found it all just a bit too perfect. And you know, she's living the dream and he's got the weight of the world on his shoulders because he can't finance mm. the dream. And I was having, I was okay with that. And then when they said, the word servant came in, I was like, oh no, I've got no sympathy for you now. <laughs> it's all right. If you can afford staff and you're whinging about the fact that, you know, you've over mortgaged and all the rest of it, then nah, sorry, I, I, I've not got much. <laughs> sympathy for me the saving grace in the story was the kind of the slight description of him jumping walls ripping his trousers and then that kind of cardio thing where you're running on horrible ground uh, or you know going over kind of a badly kept estate um, <laughs> um and that kind of maybe it's just because i've started exercising again after kind of lockdown and everything it's just like i felt like that after a couple of gym classes recently <laughs> where you feel like you're about to pass out but admittedly i didn't bang my head but um that was that bit was to me where he's kind of like he's running to the town was about the only saving grace for me. The rest of it, I was quite happy to leave. <laughs> Do you think that Mr. Cameron had a bad experience running at some stage, <laughs> and this is this is him just working it through? Sounds like it could have been that. Yes, he was. He was certainly very descriptive about these things. He'd been there. <laughs> he'd, he'd, yeah, he's woken up in the morning and gone. Why does my knee hurt? I don't understand. <laughs> I did think that when he he comes across the distraught woman blowing her whistle <laughs> and she says uh, that her daughter, um, diphtheria, and I thought diphtheria is a really weird thing to name your child. <laughs> <laughs> but then I caught on. Yes. I, I love the, like, actually the bit where she's complaining about that. She's like, oh, she cried fiercely. Um, cannot you, you understand my only child and she will choke to death. It's like, only child? What if you'd had three and you were about to lose one with that mom? So <laughs> You've no idea the expense we've gone to with this child. It's, it's horrendous. It does do that thing that we have spoken about a few times uh, 
over the course of the last couple of seasons of reading between the lines where um the characters fall on the good side of fortune uh, an awful lot yeah and in in kind of an unearned way <laughs> it it's not like he gets a job through his hard graft he gets a job um entirely accidentally by virtue of just hearing a woman's cries on the air and going to help her and going to help her i mean he didn't just sort of give her a wave and go oh, sorry i've got to catch the posty because that would have been a shorter story yes. <laughs> he did a noble deed but i didn't feel that the reward matched the deed if that makes sense no. and again it, no. it did all kind of wrap up very conveniently and quickly yeah. at the end didn't it, it? Did. at least um the the good thing about this story is that they started out married, so he didn't have to fall in love with her again. It's based on a paragraph. <laughs> One of the things I noticed about the story was that the post office stayed open till eight o'clock at night, which changed days, yeah. <laughs> different times. <laughs> I like the foreseeing of the future as well, where he talks about it would be nice to have a machine next to the thing where you could buy your stamps. And it's like I remember those as a kid. I'm sure we had one in the town that I grew up in, not on the post box, but it was at the place. The yeah, that's the, right. Uh, the post office, and you could buy a little mm-hmm. book of stamps. Uh, maybe we're missing out. The, the The real story here is whether he was clairvoyant or not. <laughs> yeah, I, I felt it was a very of its time kind mm-hmm. of story, and mm-hmm. a typical kind of people's friend from you know what we've seen in previous stories of you know there's a situation, it all works out well, somebody's rewarded, somebody does a noble deed, they take a a moment of sacrifice and you know that it's kind of rewarded at the end so it's kind of kind of got that kind of people's friend moral going through it and the other thing is to think of it from a 1910s perspective and also the readership in 1910 it's quite an aspirational thing these are two people who are firmly middle class and most of the people reading the magazine at the time are likely to be working class so it's aspirational it's looking at that as the ideal as opposed to you know the the woman who's reading this because her husband's down the pub mm. spending all the money, etc. So the, the, I, when I looked at it that way, it didn't feel quite so bad, but I still didn't like I the know. protagonists. But the thing is, they didn't, women didn't even have the vote in 1910. Mm. No. So, so they had nothing better know. to do but wait around holding the slippers and stuff. Exactly, yeah, warming the slippers. I mean, it's very much of its time, as David says. Um, but there are there are stories from this era that, that have stood that test of time better and are more palatable to a modern audience I think than this story um I think it probably hasn't aged that well <laughs> I don't know I think that just that seems harsh to me apart from it's the kind of faintly ridiculous thing of him legging it through fields sure. and falling over and stuff uh I I thought in terms of some of the domestic descriptions that turn up um in some of the stories we've been reading I thought this was pretty good. Uh, it's it's not as good as the the McPeevers, um, which we're all big fans of. That we unearthed by A. P. McDonald, which is round about this time. Yes, the his stories are being published as well. But then they're they're your working class, honest goodness, the the salt of the earth sort of people. Yeah. yeah, there's no servants in the McPeevers house. Certainly not. But they have a bit of humour about them too, yes. which I think is is maybe not not so apparent here. She does have a go. I mean, she's she's got a twinkle in her eye. Yeah, exactly. I thought she had a bit of spirit about her. Because she does it again. She does it at the start. And then when, when he wakes up following his episode, um, she does it again. Mm-hmm. Because when she's trying to explain to him that fortuitously the, the 
father of the child that he's just saved works for the company that he wants to work for. And I'm pretty sure in the text of it, she kind of goes, ah, you'll never guess, and then kind of waits for him to stumble about and try and tell her that he, he missed the post. Yeah. Whereas yeah. she could have immediately kind of gone, oh, it's all fine. I think she was more a bit like, I wonder what he's going to say. Yeah. That might be really reading between the lines. I don't know. I'm just just looking at Angela's sceptical face like, did you read the same story that I read? I was really hoping that the sea trip that they get to go on was in a dinghy. (laughs) (laughs) I will say, actually, that on the same point, I've just reread the last line of it, and it is truly awful. The last line being, any further remarks that Mary may have made were too smothered to be intelligible. Perhaps, like a good wife, she let her husband have the last word. But I thought that was kind of tongue-in-cheek as well. Is that tongue-in-cheek? That's maybe, yeah. I thought it was. That was it's, it's still awful. <laughs> I, 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 come one. on, yeah. Angela, don't sit on the fence. Say what you <laughs> no, mean. Well, you tell us what you really mean. I'm, I'm sick of you coming on this podcast and being so guarded. <laughs> <laughs> Just to take it somewhere else, um, Clifford J.R. Cameron, I did a bit of looking around and a bit of searching and um, it doesn't appear in any of our indexes as a regular con- contributor anyway, but looking around online, I found a bit about him. If it's him, there was a, there was a Clifford Cameron who was actually a pseudonym for, hold on a second, I've lost my notes. Where's it gone? It's written on the back of something. So Clifford Cameron was possibly somebody called John uh, John L. Garbutt, who was an Inglo- English writer of boy stories, which I found interesting given this, but he seems to be around 1935 that he's been picked up by um, uh, this book of pseudonyms that I found. Uh, and he had a couple of pseudonyms that he wrote boy stories under for different people, none of which are DC Thompson titles, which is kind of interesting. Mm. Um, and the only other thing about Assuming that it is the same John Elgar, but um, the only other thing I found out of him was he, he was attended the uh, Duke of Bedford's memorial service in, Be- in um, Buckinghamshire in October 1953. That's all I could find <laughs> about this guy. But I was thinking if it is the guy that wrote boys stories, this isn't anything like a boys story. Well, I don't know. I think it kind of is. It's that kind of running through the, the fields in an, an, an urgent mission to do something and then being ridiculously rewarded for it so the noble deed yeah and duty yeah 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 i'll take that <laughs> but yeah i mean it could just be an uh, if it is the same guy then it's i assume it's probably an early example of his writing yeah well it sounds like he would have had servants <laughs> you don't get invited to the duke of bedford's memorial service no. if you don't have servants well i've tried <laughs> <laughs> I'm always surprised at how difficult it is to find out anything about the Friends writers at this yeah, time. Yeah. Um, especially when it's the short stories. Obviously, the serial writers, we know, we, we usually can find more about. But no, I tried. <laughs> where, where did you find your book of synonyms? Google. <laughs> oh, pseudonym, sorry, not synonym. <laughs> Yeah, you know, um, you know, being the good archivist I am, it's like, <laughs> I did the old traditional, let me Google that for you. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I noticed about the story that a sub would definitely pick up on is he is alternately called um, David or Fraser. Yes, that annoyed me. I mm-hmm. thought it would. <laughs> no, I did that as well. So I suddenly got to a point like, hold on, who's David? Who's like- David? Yeah, that's what happened to me. Yeah. There's no way that would get through. The, no. the production team wouldn't allow that. To Absolutely me. not. Especially when you've got a surname that can be a <laughs> exactly, first name as well. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Which is a quite a Scottish thing. Yes. <laughs> They're very bland first names as well. They're quite 
bland, you know, they're, they're very um, safe first names. I haven't called it like Euphemia and no. Bertrand. Bertie well, there is, there is like diphtheria. That. It's David and Mary. <laughs> <laughs> it's David and Mary. So it's kind of like, you know, yeah. it couldn't be more suburban, <laughs> you know, yeah. if it tried really. And Dr. MacDonald, of course. Of course. Oh, yes. As I oh, you've got to have a good me. Scottish doctor, though, haven't you? Oh, you've all got <laughs> to have a Scottish doctor. Ian Bannon will play him in the movie adaptation. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we know probably what Angela's going to rate this story like, but uh, I think we should go through the formality of everyone giving it a number. Um, so, Angela, I think we'll start with you. <laughs> yeah. I, what well, would you give the story out of 10? Y- you may have realised I wasn't terribly keen on this story. <laughs> um, so I would give it a 2 out of 10. Oh, that's yeah. harsh. Brutal. Harsh. Yeah. Is it, did it just get colder in here? <laughs> <laughs> well, the editor has spoken. How can we possibly kind of go up against oh, <laughs> The benchmark has been set. Um, Judy, what do you think? Um, I'm going to give it a five. I didn't mind it that much. That's a reasonable score. Mm-hmm. Judy's it never had a problem enough. disagreeing with me, have you, Judy? No, never <laughs> have. <laughs> <laughs> There's a subject for another podcast. <laughs> That's a whole different podcast, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and David, what did you think about this one? I'm giving it a three because they just annoyed me chronically. <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought all the cut, yeah, 21st century eyes, you know, the dearest little wife in the world. No. <laughs> there aren't many stories about people, uh, about vaguely well-to-do people being rendered unemployed. Uh, no. Or certainly that I've not come across anyway. But I guess you probably don't really get the feeling of them being in any great peril, even if he is. Uh, I think we obviously we mentioned it before. That he's like, ah, oh, the weight of the world's on my shoulders. Better bang the gong and get the servant to bring dinner in because I'm kind of getting hungry. <laughs> I think you're all being very harsh. <laughs> <laughs> and that's uh, we'll we'll continue to be harsh <laughs> for the next couple of episodes at least. Uh, but for now, we'll leave this one. So uh, it just remains for me to say thank you to Judy for her narration. And thank you to David and Angela for joining us. And until this wee group of friends gets together again for another story, from the friend to you, cheerio. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Reading Between the Lines. Subscribe in your podcast app today so you don't miss our next story, and check our previous episodes for more from the Friend Archives. We would be delighted if you were to recommend this podcast to your friends. If you don't already get The People's Friend, because you listen to Reading Between the Lines, you can now get your first 13 issues for just £6. And that special offer is available until May 31st, 2022. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And for more from The People's Friend, visit thepeoplesfriend.co.uk or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Haste you back. There's a dainty little journal that is read both far and near. It has had a host of rivals, still it stands without a peer. It is bright and entertaining from the first page to the end, and is known to its admirers as the dear old people's friend. A charming little journal is the friend. Of good things it is such a happy blend. That to read it at your leisure is a pleasure without measure. The friend to friends in trouble recommend. They won't be happy till they get the friend. <laughs>